This is Sir Gene with the Morning Report. Good morning, sirs. Got a few stories to go over today, and I certainly have some opinions that go along with them. Why don't we start with the one that uh, broke last night, which is still a question mark, but there seems to be a lot of talk about it. So is Jen Psaki's brother a portfolio manager at Citadel? Uh, it, this popped up uh, probably, I don't know, last night uh, around dinner time. And there seems to be some images of Jen Psaki's brother or well, potential brother. I guess that's the big question is, uh, are they related? But somebody with her last name working at Citadel. And uh, there are plenty of messages of people saying that Jen Psaki's LinkedIn page was updated to remove a connection to the other Saki that uh, I think it was Jeff Saki or somebody that works at Citadel uh, as a fund manager. So is he her brother? Who knows? Um, maybe we'll find out eventually. Is it a relative? Possibly. But if there actually were connections between the two of them on LinkedIn, then at the very least, we know that the two Sakis knew each other. And if the two Sakis knew each other, then we get into the same problem that I think everyone's trying to push with this idea that it's her brother working there, which is um, she has mixed motivations now in uh, in speaking for the White House because obviously she's going to craft wording in a way that minimizes any damage to Citadel, any damage to um, where her sibling or relative, let's say, might work. So um, what to make of all this? If they are related, uh, we have uh, definitely a red flag here. Does it disqualify her from her job? Uh, it, probably not, because ultimately what she does isn't create policy. What she does is simply provide a PR mouthpiece for the White House. But it could certainly affect the way that she does her job if uh, speaking about that particular issue. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting uh, problem, I think, for the Democrats right now, because you you have to combine that also President. with um, her, uh, or not her, but with Yellen's uh, getting, what was it, $800,000 for speaking, speaking fees from Citadel as well. So there there's definitely an issue with um, uh, the current administration's connections to Citadel and how they're going to handle this. So uh, why don't we jump from that to Elizabeth Warren and uh, what's happening there. And it looks like Elizabeth Warren, the champion of the small guy, um, wants to have the uh, the incident with uh, GameStop Gate investigated, but not for the small guy reason. Um, she's looking at it from the perspective of market interference by people that are trying to do damage to uh, to the institutions on Wall Street, and these people are literally little tiny individual investors. Um, but in her mind, uh, that's the real issue, I guess. It's not that Citadel is shorting. Um, GameStop by huge margins. It's not the fact that uh, uh, the the whole shorting uh, hedge fund area this year apparently has lost $70 billion, uh, which, you know, even if that was seen as a good thing by some people as it is right now, it's like, yeah, stick it to the man. The reality is that those $70 billion in losses, um, you know, they're they're not really going to negatively affect the people that are in charge of these organizations. What, what they're going to do is figure out how to shift those 70 billion onto taxpayers, onto private investors, onto everybody else. So what do we, uh, what do we need to really take from the whole uh, GameStop gate saga um, or the GameStop rebellion as some people are calling it is that right now the financial system and the rules that are in place for it are built with a lot of assumptions in mind. And the assumptions are this, the people that actually play are the ones who create the rules. And when somebody new comes along and wants to play as well, they say, all right, but you have to play by our rules, not realizing that some of the rules they created for themselves um, could actually be used against them. And this is what's happening right now is we're starting to see 
that, oh, it's really not about some big hedge fund manager with his quants sitting in there and making predictions about uh, what to buy and what to sell, how to leverage companies the best and and who should be bankrupted and their assets sold off in order to maximize uh, gains. Um, no, it's it's really the old rule that's always been true. He who has the most money gets to win. That's it. That's the rule. And what we found right now is that the GameStop um, buyers, uh, the the uh, uh, individual small investors that are buying up shares of companies that they like or simply because they, they don't like the other guys um, and they're doing it out of spite, which is perfectly fine as well. You know, these retail investors, they have more money. They are the ones with the biggest wallet right now compared to the hedge funds, at least some of them. And uh, that's pretty cool, I think, um, because not only is it pr proving the rule, but it's saying, hey, if enough of us agree on a cause, even though none of us is controlling a billion dollars, we can together control billions of dollars worth of, uh, uh, of uh, well, decision-making on Wall Street. So if enough people buy this stock then the uh, the voting for the board for that stock and that company is going to be kept out of the hands of the hedge funds. It's going to be kept out of companies who literally make money by uh, finding distressed businesses and shutting them down. Um, now, I, I, I do have to say, <laughs> uh, some people that know what I do for a living may consider it a little strange that I'm taking this particular position on the topic because I do work quite often with companies to realign them and to, uh, uh, let's say, make them more efficient by trimming the fat. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think in this particular context, uh, I, I don't know how it could possibly be on the other side of the argument. Um, you've got national brands that people grew up with that they like that really have not made the jump to digital successfully. And unfortunately, those brands are paying the price for it. But so what? I mean, if people like the brand, the brand can be uh, less than competitively profitable and still stick around. Uh, right now, I think a lot of people dislike McDonald's and then Burger King and Wendy's are a lot more popular. Does that mean that we should get, you know, get to the point where McDonald's goes out of business because not enough people eat there? No, I don't think so. I think it's, it's a staple of Americana. It's something that even if I don't like their food and I mostly don't, um, I guess their chicken nuggets aren't horrible, but for the most part, I really don't like the way McDonald's food tastes. Um, and so I haven't eaten it in probably several years and then several years before that. But it's not like it's getting better. Now, with the one exception I will say is uh, the uh, the McRib. Much much like a lot of kids that grew up in the 80s, um, the McRib being a limited production thing, uh, it somehow got uh, stuck in my brain as being delicious. I know it's not really that good. But since they don't have it all the time, uh, I do have the same reaction as a lot of other people to where, oh, McDonald's has McRib. Yeah, maybe I'll swing by and, and stop and get some. So, and that was probably the last time I, I had McDonald's. Um, but uh, again, it's it, like people should be free to buy whatever stock and support whatever company they like for reasons other than the the profitability of that company. Somebody should be able to own a business that they have a personal connection with, that they have a psychological or emotional connection with. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, because of purely mathematical reasons. And so in this particular case, I think that's uh, that's the lesson that the hedge funds are learning and the reason they're having to take massive loans from each other and shuffle money around. Uh, and remember, every time somebody <clears throat> loans out money, they're creating an asset, which allows them to loan out even more money. So loans is a magic way to multiply money that can end up uh, creating fuel when, when you're running on empty. So... Anyway, there's tons written about it. I don't want to spend any more time than this talking about the topic. It's going to be fun to watch. It's going to be fun to see what happens when the stock price sort of stops being as volatile. 
are people going to start selling off? Are the ones that bought at the very bottom going to be wanting to at least cash in and make a little bit of money? Um, or they want to get a, are they going to want to get greedy and uh, dump their entire uh, portfolio all at once in that stock? And what about the people that bought in toward the the upper end? People that bought in at over 300? Because uh, obviously, if people that bought at 100 are going to start selling, it's going to drop below 300 in a heartbeat because no one else is going to be buying it again. So I think there will be some uh, bitching and moaning from the, the people that have rallied the hold the line cry as well. Um, unless you literally just thought of that as a payment rather than an investment. If you just thought, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend $1,000 just to see a hedge fund manager squirm, which is fine. I kind of suspect most people didn't think of it that way. They kind of figured, well, I'll put in a thousand bucks. I'll get a thousand back at worst. Maybe I'll get a little more than a thousand. But the reality is, of course, GameStop, and everybody knows this, GameStop is not really worth um, having a uh, in your portfolio at that sort of level, at the 300 price point. And obviously, this is not uh, financial advice, uh, not legal advice. I give no advice in this show whatsoever. I just give opinions. Uh, all right, let's move on. What else have we got? Um, uh oh steven crowder released a new video i don't know if everybody's seen it yet uh it's pretty cute it's like three three and a half minutes uh they've basically redone the some of the scenes to the 300 with steven crowder battling biden so biden is the uh the persian uh emperor i guess god whatever god emperor whatever he was uh xerxes was that his name and then um uh crowder of course is uh one of the 300 guys so they, uh, it looks pretty good. I think they did a good job. And given that Crowder's actual show has been off for quite a while, it's nice to see him doing something. And I think he said something, well, not in this video, but I, I saw something else that talked about him potentially having some health issues, health problems um, for himself. And also it sounded like his wife might be pregnant. I don't I don't remember the details, but that might have been one of the things that I heard as well. So I guess that would be the reason for um, him not really uh, being on nearly as much as he used to be. Uh, let's see what else. What else is happening? Um, let's see. Da, da, da. Hey, have you guys been watching videos from uh, Don Jr., uh, Donald Trump Jr.? Um, I don't know if he's drinking the same stuff that uh, Ted Cruz is, but man, he is 100% all in on populism. Uh, if you watch his videos, he's basically looks like a guy from Iowa. Um, could have just stepped off a tractor. Uh, in you know, one video, he's wearing a, like a, a blue T-shirt and a truck driver hat or baseball cap uh, and like both of them looking kind of old. Uh, there's some antlers that are on the wall. They're not very big. They're not very impressive. And there's a, a fire going in the fireplace. Another video, he's wearing this uh, black and red checkered, uh, uh, oh God, what do you call those shirts? The, uh, well, you always see people from up north, and I, I used to wear these, frankly, people that live up north, whether it's Canada or Minnesota or or, or the Dakotas or whatever, uh, wearing these kind of checkered patterns. And I'm totally blanking on the word and I'm not going to re-record this. Um, so you'll know what I'm talking about if you watch his videos, but yeah, again, looks like he's you know basically sitting in a garage or he's sitting somewhere in his man cave and, uh, nothing fancy. There's not a single bit of gold anywhere, which is a huge stark contrast to videos of Trump in his house in Florida, where, um, more things are gold or, uh, gold leafed. Uh, at the very least, than surfaces and items that are not gold. Trump definitely likes gold. So, um, but his kid at this point, uh, you know, with the beard, with the baseball hat, with everything else, he doesn't. He looks a lot more natural, and then, you know, than his dad does as just being one of the guys, uh, very uh, midwestern kind of looking, and and frankly sounding in the, in what he's talking about as well. So I, I think um, I don't know. It might be too early to make the prediction, but. Um, 
I have a uh, I have a suspicion that there will be a Trump running for the next election, but that it's not going to be Donald. And I've said this before. Um, I'm going to probably keep saying it for the next four years or at least three years. Uh, I really don't see Donald Trump running. He he got what he wanted. He got to be president. Yes, he didn't get a second term, but you know what? Having a first term followed by another first term is not the same thing as getting reelected and having two terms. Um, I think he is absolutely getting older, and uh, I think he's uh, he's probably, you know, he'll be involved in politics for sure. But is he going to want to go through the all the stress and trouble of running? I don't think so. And especially not if Don Jr. wants to run. I mean, the support that Trump can provide, but still kind of be in the background to his son running, uh, would be much better. And frankly, I think a lot of us, myself included, really are tired of people of the boomer generation hogging politics. And I say that as a Gen Xer. Um, there, there is still way, way, way more boomers in office right now than Gen Xers. And if you look back historically, if you look back at who were in politics, let's say 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, previous generations, there's never been a generation that has clung on to their political offices as much as the boomers. Uh, the the uh, the average age in both the House and the Senate have been creeping up. In the Senate, it's it's really high at this point. I don't remember the exact number. I, I saw a video about it uh, uh, probably a month or two ago, but it has never been this high. And so I would be much more in favor of seeing Don Jr. run than Trump run at this point. Um, and that kind of leads me to the next uh, uh, point of discussion. It's not really a story, which is, was Trump a good president? Because I think... Some people hearing me say, I don't think Trump should run, and combine that with, I, I don't want to vote for GOP, uh, probably think, well, you're just a Trump hater. You're probably a never-Trumper. Not at all. I voted for Trump um, multiple times, um, but totally legally, I should say, and uh, just before somebody starts wondering. And what I have to say is Trump, I think, has some really good um, motivators. Like, he's driven by the right kinds of things. He wants to achieve goals that uh, the majority of the people in this country actually want. Uh, and I, unfortunately, a lot of them are swayed by the uh, the myth that was created about him uh, in terms of him being this extreme right winger. I mean, for Christ's sake, Trump was a Democrat for the majority of his life. He gave more money to Democrats. He was hanging out with the Clintons when they were in the White House on a regular basis. Um, Trump is not one of these guys that was always sitting with you know Bill Buckley or somebody on the far right side uh, strategizing. Not at all. He's a practical guy. He's a construction, you know, uh, guy, construction guy. Um, obviously, he's not the one pounding the nails, but uh, he is, um, and somebody else talked about this, is he He really is the guy who is kind of like a rich blue-collar dude. Um, and what I mean by that uh, is he he is less interested in being part of those exclusive clubs that most of the upper-class elites that are running things want to be a part of. And he's more interested in just making more money because money allows him to build his own club and put his own name on it and then open it up to other people to join rather than trying to get into these institutions that uh, a lot of the elites are really into. And, and by elites, I mean people on both sides, Democrat and Republican. And it, the way I kind of describe it is like, hey, if, if NPR is a station in your car's memory, uh, in, in the car stereo, um, you probably are either an elite or you support elites or you want to be an elite or a combination of all of those. Um, and, uh, it's, I think it's a very direct correlation. Um, there, there, you're going to find very few people that are fans of NPR enough to have their radio, uh, have radios, have that as a memory. Uh, and at the same time, 
really dislike liberal politics. That that overlap is huge. There's just going to be a tiny, tiny number where that's not the case with just about everybody else is going to be true. Um, but anyway, getting back to Trump. So I think that Trump was uh, overall very positive. I think that um, he started down a lot of the right paths. And I think he pointed out a lot of hypocrisies that were happening. There is a problem with Trump. And it's a problem that um, you have to really put on some shutters to not see it exists. The problem with Trump is Trump does not know how to hire people. And given his age and given the size of his business, you would have thought that he would be really good at hiring. But that clearly was not the case. Um, the irony is his, his sort of catchphrase of you're fired, I think, points to that same uh, problem. Um, when you have to fire a whole bunch of people, that points to the fact that they were not properly hired in the first place. They were not vetted correctly. They were hired based on some sort of a emotional response, some sort of a, uh, a you know, gee, I like this guy. I'm going to hire him kind of a reasoning rather than does this person represent the, not just the skill set, but the, the political interests, the background, the, um, the, uh, I don't know, other characteristics, um, in the particular position you're going to put them in. And what we found with Trump is that the reason he had his family in so many places around him is because there is a built-in trust because they know if they screw him, then it's going to affect them negatively, both from a, a last name perspective and from a financial perspective. So family first is a safe way to work with people that aren't going to backstab you. But if you look at the number of people that Trump has hired, in, in my opinion, mistakenly, um, that have backstabbed them after uh, they've left those positions, it's probably more people than he's hired that didn't backstab them. Virtually everybody that he brought into his administration outside of his family had negative things to say about Trump once they left. Um, that certainly wasn't the case with Bush. There was a few outliers, but not many. That certainly wasn't the case with Obama. There's virtually nobody that had bad things to say about Obama. Uh, you know, if you go back even further uh, to Clinton, there's very few people that had anything bad to say about Clinton when they left his office, whether it was in the first term or the second term. Uh, there, there's a few folks, but not many. It was just one handful. But with Trump, it is a, a huge majority of, of his previous staff. And what that tells me as somebody that hires a lot of people and fires a lot of people is that um, there's a real problem with the hiring process. And my, my guess, I don't know this, but I suspect it's the case, is that Trump is one of those guys that likes to hire based on gut feel. And so when somebody presents themselves well, when they say the right couple of words to him, and I don't mean necessarily kissing his ass either. It, it, that may not even be a part of it. But nonetheless, they say things that just emotionally trigger him positively that he's he, you know, he, for lack of a better term, falls in love with that person. And he says, yeah, this is a guy. Let's, let's hire him. Let's bring her in. You know, she's going to be perfect in that role. So uh, unfortunately, that type of a hiring process leads to the wrong people being in place. And so I think that's one of the, the unfortunate negative legacies of the Trump administration is that it created a, uh, a lot of bad hires. And a lot of those bad hires were working against Trump the entire time before they left as well. So, um, so for, I guess this is not the main reason, but it adds to the number of reasons why I don't think Trump needs to run again. I think he's done what he needed to for the country. Um, but, uh, but the next candidate needs to be better at hiring. And that is absolutely, uh, vital to having a candidate that can survive for a second term in office. Um, and, uh, my hope is that that candidate comes from the Patriot party or whatever other name that party ends up having. And not from the GOP, because if it's going to be a GOP candidate, um, even let's say it's, it's Trump Jr. Uh, he's probably not going to get elected and we're probably going to end up with, um, a minimum of eight and possibly 12 years of Democrats running things. Now, the good news is 
the Democrats, boy, they really are trying to sabotage themselves, aren't they? Uh, combine the fact that uh, Biden already has more than 40 executive orders, and we're not even done with the first month. We're not even done with half the month. And Biden has 40 executive orders, I think 41 or 42 now. Uh, that is insane. That That is absolutely crazy. He's cranking out a couple a day, every single day. And he had a whole large batch room initially. In fact, let's just run through some of these, uh, see which ones are actually important, which ones are not. So uh, yesterday, executive orders strengthen Affordable Care Act and Medicaid by directing agencies to review any policies that may hinder access to the ACA and recommending the opening of a three-month enrollment period for uninsured Americans. So kind of bringing back Obamacare, um, that's a pretty big deal, right? Not all of Obamacare, obviously. The parts that were thrown out in court can't be brought back with executive order, but effectively canceling the executive order that Trump had in place. Um, memorandum reversing the Trump administration's Mexico City policy that blocked funding to groups that included abortion services or information in their family planning programs. So there's another executive order, uh, abortion-related. Honestly, I wish, you know, I wish somebody would just, like, pass actual legislation that dealt with abortion instead of having the president or the courts uh, battling this, uh, this ground. This, this really should just be something that people both at the state level and if, if there's enough people at the federal level um, need to codify into law and, and not just simply leaving it up to the courts and executive orders. Um, okay, a day earlier, January 27th, uh, executive order elevating climate change as a national security concern and committing of goal of conservation or and committing to the goal of conservation goals. So he's, he's making a goal of goals. Interesting. So that executive order looks like it does nothing. Now, there may be money associated with this, but he can't, he can't just create money out of thin air there. Um, he can transfer some funds from other initiatives, I guess. Uh, but that could also be an unfunded mandate that he just created with the executive order. I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. There's so many of them flying out every single day. And obviously, he's not the one writing these things, right? So he's not even reading them. He was asking, what am I signing? I remember that was a, a big joke. So uh, he's signing things that are put in front of him. And then, um, um, you know, and this is a guy who said uh, somebody that, that the only, or what was his quote? I can't remember the exact quote, but something to the effect of the only person that uh, rules by executive order uh, is a dictator. And he, he's probably going to hit the mark on the most executive orders of any president well within his first year, like more than other presidents have done in two terms. And certainly more than Trump did in one term, he's going to be able to do in less than a year at the rate he's going. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Previous to that executive order directing the phase out of private prisons. All right. Memorandum and memorandum condemning racism and xenophobia against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, sure. Memorandum directing agencies to mitigate racial bias in federal housing policies. So that, you know, sounds fine, right? Shouldn't be any racial bias, but probably what it means is the exact opposite. So it probably has some specific numbers associated with it. Let's say you have to have a minimum of this number of people that are not whites. Uh, okay, next one. Memorandum recommitting the government to respecting tribal sovereignty, um, which probably means he's going to figure out some way to tax tribes more. Uh, I mean, all the names, it's, it's hilarious. If you look at the names of bills in the House, you look at the names of, of these uh, executive orders, and then you read the details, it's often hilarious how the names are literally the exact opposite of what the bills do. In fact, I had this, okay, I, I don't need to read through all his orders. You guys know he's got a whole bunch of them. There's websites that track every single executive order. You can look that up. But there was a, um, uh, oh, I'm just losing my train of thought. So I was going to jump from executive orders to the, oh, the bills that are opposite. So I actually had to look something up recently. There was a, a comment about, um, I think, guns or Reagan or something. And I said, you know, I vaguely recall that the the ban on owning machine guns um, 
like legally owning machine guns was actually implemented in the mid eighties, 85 or 86. So I looked it up. Sure enough, it was the, the 1986, um, was when the bill was passed. I'm going to have to redo it, type it live here. Let's see. Uh, Reagan, 1986 bill guns. And, uh, the reason I'm doing this is I want to read the name. So the name of the act is the firearm owners protection act. Okay. Sounds awesome. Let's protect the owners of firearms. Right. So what's in the bill? Ban on new automatic firearms. Uh, okay. So how exactly does that uh, protect firearms? Uh, so unlawful for any person to transfer or possess a machine gun. So those of you born more recently than that, um, you may be wondering, well, my God, you mean machine guns used to be legal to possess? Absolutely. Technically, some of them still are. The ones that were manufactured prior to 1986. Um, the way that it worked was exactly the same way as with silencers or I know people that have them always don't want to have them be called silencers because they don't silence things. They just make them quieter. Right. But, um, uh, sound suppressing devices, if you want to be, I guess, more accurate, um, which are available now as well, but for both machine guns and uh, sound suppressing devices for silencers, uh, what you had to do was you had to pay a $200 tax. And of course, when you pay that tax, you submit a bunch of paperwork. So, you know, there's a list of who owns these things, who owns machine guns, who owns, um, silencers. And what happened in 1986 was when they passed this completely misnamed act, uh, they, um, they essentially prevented any machine guns manufactured after the passage of that bill to be available, to be privately owned, even with the $200 stamp, uh, with the tax. So what that created was two things. One is, as everybody knows, criminals don't obey laws. So did a law like that prevent criminals from owning machine guns? Absolutely not. Uh, anybody that's going to break the law by, by you know, robbing people uh, or shooting people, especially, well, they're not going to pay attention to laws and and uh, obey them, right? They're not going to do that. So the only thing it really did is it it took all newly manufactured machine guns out of the hands of people. And uh, and incidentally, when I say machine guns, I don't just mean the big ass fifty caliber you know truck mounted machine guns that that you may be thinking of. Um, I'm talking about just regular um, rifles that were available with a full auto mode uh, or even a um, uh, select fire mode, which is like a two shot or a three shot mode. And so previous to this, like uh, you, you could buy a an Uzi, you could buy a, um, uh, oh, what was the, the uh, HK MP5. That was a very popular cool gun. And I've shot that a number of times. Um, uh, you know, fairly compact guns, but that had a full auto mode on them or a select fire mode or a AK-47 with select fire. Um, you know, all these things were available, but they were expensive. They were uh, only available uh, legally if you go through the process of registering them. And the way that works, uh, if anyone's curious, is um, the time between when you apply for uh, for paying the tax or you effectively you send in the check and fill out the paperwork and between when you actually get a response saying, okay, you're good to go. Here's your receipt, which is called a stamp. Um that time can be significant. So that could be six months. I've heard it be as long as a year for people. And during that time, the, between when you register, after you've paid for the gun, and when you get your receipt back, you can't touch that gun. So that gun is bought and paid for, and it's sitting at the dealer for six months to a year, just, you know, uh, doing nothing, being packed up, and you're probably getting charged a storage fee uh, until the paperwork comes in for you to own that. So there's been a whole slew of cool new guns that have come out that are uh, that have full automatic variants that would be really neat to own, but thanks to this absolutely misnamed law called the Firearm Owners Protection Act, you can't own them now, even by paying a tax. The only guns you can buy were manufactured prior to 1986, and that means 
something that was really an under $1,000 gun, like an M16, uh, typical gun that the U.S. military used to use. They're slowly phasing out. Uh, those guns are selling for 40000 Well, let's say for sure 20 I haven't seen 40 uh, I know people have mentioned it. I have seen them sold for $20,000. And this is for like a used 25-year-old gun um, that was under $1,000 when it was manufactured. And the only reason it's that expensive is because of this law. Because all newer guns manufactured after 1986... Um, and I guess it's more than 20 years, right? So it's it's actually 35 years. Uh, all guns manufactured after 1986, you just can't own, period. So the only way you get to shoot a gun that is fully automatic, that was manufactured after 1986, is if you either are or work for somebody that has what's called a Class 3 permit, um, somebody that essentially is a dealer to other companies that are allowed to, or to the government, which is obviously allowed to own fully automatic weapons, Um or, you know, you go to a, like a, a gun range day where people that are those people can take their guns and have other people be able to shoot them. So a uh, rare opportunity. Take it if you can get a chance, obviously. Um, always fun. But also pretty damn expensive because guess what? When you empty the whole magazine in just a few seconds um, at the current price of ammunition in this country, that, that's probably about a $25 to $50 magazine, depending on the exact ammo you're shooting. So it can get very expensive to do that. Uh, but I've had a lot of fun. I've shot a lot of football guns over the years. Um, everything from, uh, uh, from Tommy guns to M16s to, uh, 50 cals. That's it. It really is a interesting experience. It's worthwhile. And if anything, it should convince you that a fully automatic gun is absolutely a worse gun to have in any kind of self-defense situation than a semi-automatic gun. I mean, that, I think that's pretty universal. Anybody that shoots a full auto thinks it's awesome. It's fun. It's enjoyable, uh, a little crazy. And I would never want to have this instead of something that shoots one bullet at a time if push comes to shove, because, the you just cannot have anywhere near the level of accuracy with a fully automatic firearm and you're guess what you're going to be out of ammo a lot faster because uh that gun's going to keep shooting until you release your finger off the trigger so we've made a kind of a weird trajectory today man i let's see do i have any stories i need to get to real quick this was mostly opinion today not a whole lot of stories um so let's see uh story about uh how horrible the house is yes we know that oh yeah i guess there's um a lot of demonstrations happening in Paris right now. Videos of people getting water cannons being shot at them. Um, you know, demonstrations in a lot of European cities, They some of them are getting violent. Some of them are starting to burn down buildings. Uh, a lot of them have police just, you know, keeping the protesters uh, uh, under control here. But I don't know, man. I, I, there is a breaking point. People will not put up with having to wear masks that everybody knows don't do anything. It, it literally is a muzzle that is symbolic. And it's, it's like having a blue check mark next to your link, next to your uh, Twitter profile that says, hey, I'm important because I have a blue check mark. And the reason I have a blue check mark is because I agree with the establishment. I agree with the elites. And it's the same thing here. You wear a mask. That's essentially what you're saying. You're not preventing anything. This is not medical advice. I'm not a doctor. But boy, I have put up tons and tons of uh, medical uh, actual documents written by not just doctors, but researchers, which is actually more important that, um, that look at the efficacy of these things. Unless you're have, you're wearing an N95 mask, which nobody is, you walk around, you'll never see one. Unless you're wearing one of those, all you're doing is creating a platform for bacteria to grow on both coming out of your mouth and being spread by your hands onto the mask whenever it's touched. So do I wear a mask? If I have to, I will of course wear a mask. Most, most of the time I don't, or I figure out a way around wearing a mask. But if I have to wear a mask, it goes on for the duration of the thing that I have to wear one in, like grocery shopping, for example. And it goes in the trash the minute I walk out of the grocery store. 
I don't wear a mask multiple times. I don't wear a mask that is a, uh, going to be taken off and put on. If I ever take a mask off, it goes in the trash. Um, and the reason I do that is, uh, even though the mask isn't going to prevent any virus from getting in, the, the mask can absolutely help with getting bacteria into you. So I don't want that to happen. I would rather avoid bacteria. So I throw the mask away. Now I also have a pretty cool leather mask. Um, and I, I will occasionally wear that. Um, and by the way, that does also absolutely nothing. It's, it's a cool looking mask. Um, <clears throat> but that, that to me is the same as a bandana, right? That's, that's absolutely a fashion statement. Um, and it, I mostly wear the leather mask when I'm hanging out with liberals because it's a, it's a nice little kind of fuck you thing because, uh, what it does is it makes them think that I actually take the whole mask thing more seriously than they do. I have a leather mask that has, uh, it's, it's basically, Kev it's made of leather and Kevlar. It's custom designed and, uh, it has uh, multiple filtration systems inside. Um, but you know. I don't do it because I believe in the damn thing. I do it because it's fun to fuck with people. That's it. Um, and it absolutely, absolutely is. And if you want to uh, see that, I think I posted one of my photos when uh, Adam Curry and I were having dinner the other night um, where I was wearing that mask in the photo as well. Um, but I, one other thing before I wrap up for today, um, I did want to definitely mention is, is that um, Elon Musk, I think, is uh, somehow managed to piss off the, uh, the current administration. I'm not sure. Everyone's trying to figure out exactly what happened, but somehow during the last test launch of Starship, there was a um, there was something that triggered the uh, FAA to be upset about it. Like they they had I don't know if they fined him or they they did something to essentially say you you broke some FAA regulations when you did that launch. Um, it's not clear at this point, at, at least, on what that specific thing is. I have uh, certainly my hunch of what that might be, and, and I'm guessing. There was an airplane that was still within the exclusion zone by the time they launched. And so there was technically some risk to some airplane, probably some little private plane uh, flying VFR, but whatever it was um, that the FAA didn't, didn't like. And so now they're starting to fuck with him. And they're, they're like, they canceled the last test that uh, he was set up for, that all the applications were in for, everything was in. And that test ended up getting pulled. Uh, they, they canceled his permission at the last minute last Thursday. And, um, so then of course, you know, um, uh, Musk being Musk, he tweets about it and says, boy, we'll never get to Mars if the FAA, uh, starts to just like act so damn conservatively or what, you know, whatever he's bitching about the FAA. That's what's happening in the end, whatever exact thing he said. And then miraculously, uh, like a day later or a short time later, um, there's a, there's an investigation by the Biden administration into his hiring practices. Oh, really? Oh, you're, you're complaining about the government? Well, let's take a look. Maybe there's something wrong with your company. Let's, uh, let's see. And the, what's so hilarious is the thing that they seem to be complaining about, right? The, 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 the issue at hand with his hiring practices is that it appears that he asks people, and I, when I say he, I don't mean like Musk doesn't actually hire people, right? His company does. But it appears that SpaceX um, asks people's citizenship and whether or not they are legally allowed to be in the United States or not prior to uh, giving them a job, like during the interview process. Oh my God, what a horrible person. How can he possibly do that? How can he possibly confirm people's legality in being able to work in the United States? I know a little bit about this. I was married to somebody that was an import into the United States, uh, uh, past tense. And, uh, you know, when you show up on a tourist visa or you just cross the border illegally, you're not allowed to work in the United States. You have to apply for a specific work permit. Um, and that is a limited permit with a lot of restrictions, very small dollar amounts, not enough to live on. 
it's kind of like a supplemental thing. And the only way that you can really start working in the United States, like full-time making, you know, a decent money is after you get your green card. And your green card is effectively your permit to live here and your permit to work here without being a citizen. And that's, I guess, what uh, what SpaceX was asking was um, for either, uh, you know, whether somebody was a citizen and or had a green card or if they didn't. So that is something that almost every company asks and should ask and, frankly, would get in trouble for hiring somebody that didn't have a work permit or a green card or a citizenship. So uh, I don't know what they're trying to make out of this whole thing, but clearly this is politically motivated. The Biden administration is trying to push back on somebody who's probably the most successful entrepreneur doing the best work for humanity. Um, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Musk is basically Reardon, um, Hank Reardon. Uh, if you haven't read that, like shrugged, you probably should. But um, I don't know what they're thinking. If they start going after Musk in other ways, boy, they're going to see a lot more people writing. And it's not going to be, uh, it's it, you know, Musk is the canary in the coal mine. He's an example of what you can do when business is allowed to act in a, uh, in a manner that is conducive with capitalism and not with crony capitalism. And I want to make that distinction because there are a lot of other companies on the other side of the aisle that are also big, but they're big because they pony up a lot of uh, money to the politicians. They're, they're big because they've figured out how to buy their way in, uh, how to grease the wheels and uh, how to make sure that they get government contracts. You know, Musk is one government contract because his technology is better than the alternatives. He's been able to build things at a much faster pace than everybody else has. People will bitch about, well, the government bailed out uh, Tesla. He, he took government money. Yeah, yeah, he did, along with everybody else, and he repaid it. And now Tesla is the largest United States-based automobile manufacturer. They're bigger than GM, they're bigger than Ford. So, and that's if you look at the number of car sales. Um, it, it By far, you look, you look at how many Tesla cars were purchased last year versus other manufacturers' cars, and it is a large number. So, now, I'm not including F-150 trucks here, guys. I know there are people who are like, oh, it's bullshit. Ford makes trucks and trucks sell. Yes, absolutely. Until the, the, the Tesla truck comes out, they're not part of that, uh, that market segment. Um, although I do have to say I have a down payment on a Tesla truck, but uh, Cybertruck. But um, I don't know. We'll see what happens. It may be years until that thing comes out. But either way, I think Musk is an example of a very positive, successful entrepreneur. And if the government starts going after him, it's going to piss off a lot of us. Um, a lot of people that are you know, mildly pissed off are going to become extremely pissed off. Um, because, uh, he really represents what a lot of people aspire to be, uh, which is not to be trying to do backroom deals in order to, uh, kill their competitors by using government forces, not to be oligarchs, which is what we have in, in most of the elites, certainly all the social media elites right now, they're all oligarchs. They're all totally tied to the government. They couldn't succeed without the government. Um, so yeah, not a good thing. And I'm, I'm certainly hoping that, uh, uh, Musk figures out a good way around this, um, so that he can keep doing his launches, keep making progress towards Mars uninhibited. And if anybody wants to see what happens when the government has their fingers in it, just look at NASA. Look at what's happening with the uh, the moon missions and what's happening with Boeing, with companies that have been historically uh, very tightly tied to the government space program. Uh, they're falling behind. They're literally not just not making forward progress. They're falling behind. They're having more problems with things that they have already allegedly passed the tests on. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the That's true of the whole SLS program. Uh, that's true of uh, most of Boeing space aerospace products. Um, although Boeing's had plenty of problems with their airplanes as well. So anyway, Musk some is a guy that uh, I think is a canary in a coal mine. Really need to watch and see what ends up happening with him. And uh, hopefully things will turn out good. Um, with that, I think I'm going to wrap up 